let's cut out all the love your customer blah blah and get serious about accountable measurement and management of them. So that's my job, is to bring lifetime value to life, both as a concept, as a method, and as a platform for action. Once we understand what things look like within a cohort, that's where the 80-20 comes in, let's now start to look across the cohorts to say, as we acquire each subsequent batch of customers, are they getting a little bit better or are they getting a little bit worse? than the ones that we acquired before. So let's really understand the nature of the cohorts. So as we're out there doing all of our marketing and product development stuff, that's gonna be a gauge to say if we're doing it well. Uh, very often it's more about acquisition characteristics. Not only when did we acquire you, hmm. but how did we acquire you? What's the first product that you bought from us? I mean, that, that's an amazing indicator right there. But very often just based on the first product alone, that's a strong indication of whether you're going to be a good customer or a not so good one. One thing no one knows about you. I have seven toes on my right foot. Hello, fellows. Welcome to the next episode of Jagged with Jasravi. Subscribe to my channel for conversations at the edge with thought leaders from the marketing, branding, and the business world. Conversations that ignite new ideas ideas with rough and sharp edges. Hello, Peter. I'm thrilled to have you on my show. Uh, Josh Ravi, it's great to talk to you. I know we have a lot to discuss and uh, let's dive right in. Yay. Okay. So, Peter, now, if I try to introduce you, I mean, I need a book myself, isn't it? So, we'd leave the most difficult task on you and we'd say it'd make it more difficult to say if you had to say it like a tweet what would you say about yourself well i i love the fact that you put that challenge out there uh, and so uh after you proposed it to me i i i literally tweeted it out um so and and here's what i said let's cut out all the love your customer blah blah and get serious about accountable measurement and management of them. Customers really are a firm's most critical asset, so let's treat them as such, whether you're in marketing, finance, or even as an outside stakeholder. So I, I, again, I appreciate your forcing me to squeeze my life into 280 characters. Uh, <laughs> stand by it. Yeah, yes, yes. Everybody who knows you uh, would stand by it. You know, I, I, I was reading up uh, what you have written and listening to some of your podcasts also. And I love this part when you say that when they say customer knows everything and customer is the king, this is a traditional view that is irresponsible, ineffective and misaligned with best practices. And I think at this if my audience doesn't sit up and say, what, really? Where is this going? At this point only, I'd request you, how would you define customer centricity? What it is not, what it is. Right. Uh, first of all, you know, you want jagged edge. This is pretty edgy and pretty jagged. So uh, uh, and I appreciate the, the chance to, to expand and clarify. You know, I, I'm the first to admit that in, in titling my first book, Customer Centricity, that might have been a mistake uh, because those words, first of all, are too vague. 
And to the extent they mean anything, a lot of people get the exactly wrong idea. Uh, so a lot of a lot of people will, will just read that title. They don't read the book. They just read the title. And they'll say, oh, well, that's that's us. We're centered around every customer. The customer is at the heart of everything we do. And then I just put my head on my desk. Uh, because the, the, the point is that not all customers are created equal. We know this. We, we talk, at least informally, about the 80-20 rule, that a few of our customers bring a disproportionate amount of profits. Well, that's true. And if that is true, then we need to manage and measure our customer base accordingly. To say, so who are those 20%? What makes them different? What should we be doing for them? And how should we cost effectively manage the other 80%? So these ideas of customer centricity, or let's look at the subtitle of the book, focus on the right customers for strategic advantage. Then instead of trying to take those so-so 80% and try to turn those ugly ducklings into beautiful swans, let's, I don't want to say give up on them. Well, let's acknowledge that they're going to be ugly ducklings for life. Uh, and let's just figure out what makes the swans different. Uh, how do they talk about us? How do they use our products and services? In fact, which products and services do they use disproportionately more than the others? Um, how do we add more value to them? How do we extract some of that value from them? And how do we acquire more customers like them? Wow. If we can do those things, we can make more money in a sustainable, mm -hmm. defendable, ethical way. That is customer centricity. So beautifully explained. Uh, the analogy is like, wow. And and then use the 80-20, you know, context, which is which everybody is very familiar. But unfortunately, it's not applied while unmasking the customer base, as you call it. So how should, because you've said that's the gold mine. You know, you, you identify, you, you separate the ugly ducklings and the swans. How do you do that uh, in, in a particular business? How do you go about it? So this is You want to give the analytical toolkit some aspects of it? You can go sure. about it whichever way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this has been my obsession for, well, I'm completing my 36th year on the Wharton faculty. Uh, and in fact, let me go way back. Uh, the, 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 my, uh, mentor uh, up at MIT who talked me into going to the field of marketing, uh, she said to me, her name is Lee McAllister, back in the early 1980s, she said, we are building the electron microscope of the customer. We're going to have the ability to see customers at a granular level, understand them and build our businesses to take advantage of all that. I thought she was a cuckoo bird, um, but she was right. Uh, and so a lot of my work has been basically asking and answering that question. How granular can we get? How granular do we need to get? And what do we see once we have that kind of granularity? How can we understand the differences in how we acquire customers, uh, how we can retain them, how we can get them to do more and, and, and so on? So that, that's been my, my life, is basically building statistical models, taking available data, projecting ahead, who's going to do what, when, and for how long, and then bringing it all together into this idea of customer lifetime value, mm -hmm. a concept that, of course, you're familiar with, and I'm sure you know, many of the folks watching and listening to this, they say, yeah, yeah, we, we, we get it. We, we know that. But a lot of people, just like the 80-20 rule, don't take it seriously, but they don't do it in a really rigorous way. They don't really carefully assess those models and think about all the use cases for them. 
So that's my job, is to bring lifetime value to life, both as a concept, as a method, and as a platform for action. And it's been just an amazing couple of years uh, to see people starting to to really embrace and run with these ideas. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that's the beauty of... Uh what is going to come next as well, uh, dear audience, because customer lifetime value, people have an idea, and especially, you know, in service businesses and salon businesses, they'll be like, okay, you know, we have to get them back. We have to kind of upsell. We have to cross sell, you know, but at, at a very superficial level, but you have taken it to another level. And uh, when you, uh, so you, we'll also talk about how you link it to a company's profitability and sustainable growth. But to begin with, this lovely acronym CLV, if we had to talk about some misconceptions and how it's underestimated, what would you say are the key aspects? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I hope we have hours. Uh, because it is, because it is an important concept, and so many people are jumping on the bandwagon, and they're kind of just making stuff up. Uh, and so, so here's just the you know top of the list. But then I could again truly go on for a long, long time. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, it's 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 really funny when companies come to me and say, so when you're calculating customer lifetime value, you know, over what horizon are you calculating it? You know, a year, two years? And I'm saying, don't you understand what the L means? The L stands for lifetime that <laughs> we're going to project this out basically infinitely far because you know and especially in a b2b setting your customer may never die uh, and so we want to project this out over a long horizon i mean you you said the word yourself we don't want to underestimate the value of our customers by by now i have no problem projecting customer profitability over a year or two or three i'm i'm, I'm good with that in many practical settings that's probably a better place to go than lifetime value. But if we're talking about lifetime value, we're going to do it seriously. And we're going to do it over a very, very long horizon. Yes, we're going to acknowledge the time value of money. Yes, we're going to say that a dollar that we get from you 10 years from now isn't as valuable as a dollar that we get tomorrow. Of course, we're going to account for that. But once we do, then why put a ceiling on it? So that's number one is is how far out we go. And number two, when a lot of people say, so what is the model for lifetime value? And my answer, the words I hate to say, but really have to say them is, it depends. Are we talking about a subscription type business? Are we talking about some kind of discretionary purchase where, there, where you know you just kind of do it when you feel like it? Uh, so there's a, a bunch of different business models out there. Uh, and I'm not talking product versus service. I'm talking about things like, is it contractual or non-contractual or some hybrid of the two? Uh, and so we need a separate lifetime value model, depending on the nature of the customer relationships. And then third, and I'm going to leave it at that, is uh, uh, too often companies will say, so what is the lifetime value for your customer base? And once again, the answer is it depends. Are we talking about the best customers? Or are we talking about the worst ones? So we care just as much about the distribution of the lifetime values mm-hmm. as we care about what is the, the, the average. There is no average customer. Uh, and understanding you know, what that right tail looks like. How many of those beautiful swans do we have? Mm-hmm. Um, and just how swanful are they? Um, there, there's a, a lot of very, very important insights and financial implications arising from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're saying understand in layman terms, 
who's your best customer? Who's giving you the maximum value? Yes, there'll be a few factors that will decide that. Those factors can vary depending on the kind of business you have. But determine that, figure out your best consumers and focus on them, uh, whether you're tailoring your um, uh, product, new innovation or uh, enhanced service. Sorry if, I, if I'm taking it further, but whatever you're doing, focus on them. And That's right. But, but I want to say two things, if I may. Yes. Um, so, so, so two things there uh, that I'm actually going to disagree with. Uh, one is, first of all, you just use the word consumer. And I want to emphasize that while, of course, it does apply to consumers, it's not limited to consumer oriented businesses. These concepts and methods apply just as well in just a straight B2B setting, maybe even better. So even if we're just selling to a distributor or, or, or and so on. Um, our, our customer might not be a consumer. So that, that's number one. And number two, another thing you, you said is too often is uh, it's, you know, we have our product. So who are the, the best consumers for it? I'm trying to flip that around mm. to say, here's our best customers. What kinds of products should we develop for them? Mm. So the, the usual marketing mantra is we go to the people in R&D, they, they tell us what it is we're going to sell and we figure out who to sell it to. That's not customer centricity. Customer centricity is what makes those good customers different. And then, hey, R&D people, develop something for them. So we're really going to flip the script uh, and let the value of those customers and the distinctive features of those customers drive the R&D decisions. And, uh, again, not the other way around. Yes, yes. So that 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 is the 20. That is the 20 rule. You are going to benefit from it. So when you say, um, you know, what are the three, four things that define measurement of a CLV, if at all across industries, if you have to say globally, um, you know, like you've mentioned now, uh, the purchase cycle or the value of each purchase. So if we had to just broadly mention the three, four things, what is I'm that? happy to do that. I, and I'm even wondering if you kind of know where I'm going with this or because uh, it's, it's really a, a, an important phase of my life, actually. So, so as these ideas were just starting to kind of come to me and sort of coming together uh, back in the 1980s, 1990s, uh, a number of people said, you know, you ought to look at the direct marketing industry. You know, so the, so the folks who back in the, in the old days before we had an internet who would send you catalogs and they'd say, you know, which thing do you want? And they were constantly testing. Uh, you know, today we talk a lot about experimentation and A-B testing. A lot of it was born back then by these firms, as was this concept of customer lifetime value. Yeah. Um, and, and as part of their testing, they were asking exactly that question. What are the factors? What are the features? What are the aspects of the higher value customers? Mm -hmm. So they did what today we'd call a little bit of data mining just to basically say, so what are the things that set those customers apart? And they handed us this amazing gift called RFM, recency, frequency, monetary value. So again, I'm talking about work being done 40, 50 years ago. And they said, the things you wanna look for would be the customers who have bought from you most recently and have bought from you most often over say, I don't know, the last two years and when they bought, the size of those purchases, recency, frequency, monetary value. 
And I have to admit that when I first learned about this rubric, I said, oh, that's nice. You know, the, wait in line. There's a million other rubrics out there. What would make this one special? It's not particularly sexy or anything like that. Um, but boy, oh boy, they were right. And it was years later uh, uh, when I, I uh, kind of following up on some of the practices and then developing some of these statistical models and doing all this crazy complicated math that I do and finding that if I did all this math, it collapsed right down to RFM. So I kind of discovered or rediscovered what our forefathers taught us 50 years ago, kind of in a different path. And a light bulb went off and said, my goodness, they're right. It is all about RFM. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so, uh, so and again, it doesn't necessarily apply to every business. But if we're talking about a hotel chain or if we're talking about a um, a, a retailer, a gaming company, a pharmaceutical company that sells kind of discretionary pharmaceuticals and more for say cosmetics and not a chronic ailment, um, then asking those three questions uh, or getting the answers, recency, frequency, monetary value um, will be the inputs that will both distinguish the customers and give us really good predictions about what they're gonna be worth in the future. And people hear this, and they go, yeah, I get it. And they have the same reaction I did 30 years ago. Uh, and say, but our business is different. Your business is not different. And RFM is going to apply just as well to you as, as it does to so many others. So far, uh, Peter, the kind of data mining that is very common, even if it's superficial, please tolerate this for a moment. That Okay, you, you're going to look at... Um, the demographic segments, you'd look at psychographics. And mm -hmm. now it's like, okay, we look at behavioral segmentation. How is the behavior different? So when you're making this cohort of the most valuable customer, the 20, the swans, what, and, and of course we have the RFM, which is going to tell us the value, I mean, like like the business part, like like really dhanda, as we say in India. <laughs> what other aspects will come in this data mining? I mean, I if if there are small business owners or startup um, owners listening to this, and if they have to really appreciate that there is a fundamental difference in how you start looking at your customer, like you say, unmasking the gold mine. If just one ponders over it, you know, there's so much depth there. So what would you say there? So for one thing, you, you said something that was pure gold that we really need to emphasize. You used cohorts, uh, and that's so important. And every business should be doing this on a regular basis. That uh, Instead of doing an analysis just of the customer base as, as a whole, we really want to break it down based on cohorts. And again, this is a word that sometimes leads to confusion. A lot of people use the words cohorts and segments interchangeably. We wanna draw a clear distinction between them. So when we talk about cohorts, we're talking about groups of customers who were acquired at the same time or through the same channel or through the same program, but mostly time. So let's look at the customers that we acquired in 2019 and those we acquired in 2018 and 17 and 16. And let's do a separate analysis for each batch of customers. Let's understand the, the RFM, the lifetime value. Let's understand the 80-20 the rule uh, for each different groups of customers based on when we acquired them. So that's really important and every business should be doing that. And then once we understand what things look like within a cohort, that's where the 80-20 comes in, 
Let's now start to look across the cohorts to say, uh, as we acquire each subsequent batch of customers, are they getting a little bit better or are they getting a little bit worse than the ones that we acquired before? So let's really understand the nature of the cohorts. So as we're out there doing all of our marketing and product development stuff, that's going to be a gauge to say if we're doing it well, that if we can manage to kind of maintain or even improve value across the cohorts of customers, yay. So before we even start getting into those details about what makes the customers different from each other, let's first do a cohort level analysis. And that's going to be extremely valuable. And it should be just a regular part of every company's operations. Uh, and so, you know, I make a big deal about it. Again, I'm not trying to push these things, but I, I love the idea of a customer base audit. Mm -hmm. We need to be looking at our customer base again in a rigorous, accountable way. And it's the cohort that's kind of the almost the main building block of that. Then we can start drilling down and say, okay, well, what makes those swans different than those ugly ducklings? Maybe it is demographics. Um, it isn't demographic as often as you think it might be. And even when it is, it's very often transient. Like for this cohort, it could be there were certain demographic features that distinguish the high value customers, but then it changes with the next one. So demographics tend not to be as, as enduring, as reliable as you'd like them to be. Uh, very often, it's more about acquisition characteristics. Not only when did we acquire you, mm. but how did we acquire you? What's the first product that you bought from us? I mean, that, that's an amazing indicator right there. But very often, just based on the first product alone, that's a strong indication of whether you're going to be a good customer or a not so good one. Now, of course, it's going to vary from company to company, but I'd like rather look for those kinds of behavioral indicators as it's kind of stronger, longer lasting, and more actionable. Peter, take an example. Share share a case or something. You have so many examples in your book. Um, sure. Well, and so let me let me talk about it again. So in, in the customer base audit, we we're talking for the most part just about traditional kinds of customer metrics, you know, customer acquisition, repeat purchasing and, and retention and so on. But in chapter eight, we bring back the product dimension and we say, let's look at our products, not through the lens of how many units we sell, because we know which are the best selling products and which ones we don't sell a lot of, but through the lens of what's the value of the customers who buy those products. And in many, many cases, in fact, I'm going to say most of the time, the products that we sell the most of are actually going to be appealing to lower value customers. You know, it's it that it's the eighty. Um, it, you know, it's it's the majority of those light buyers who tend to be buying the more popular products. Um, whereas the products that distinguish the high value customers are going to be going to be smaller. They're going to be nichier as we start to rationalize the product line. You know, cut some of the stock keeping units out of our product line. So let's get rid of the, the low sellers. But if some of those low sellers are the things that distinguish the high value customer, whoa, we better not touch those. In fact, we need to double down on those kinds of products. Mm -hmm. so, so looking at products through the lens of customer value is extremely important. And unfortunately, companies that do that tend to be more exception than rule. And once again, I don't care how big your firm is. That, that kind of analysis is very, very easy to do. In fact, for a small firm, 
uh, it, it actually might even be easier because you you know who those customers are. You know, if you're operating just one small store and you know the people as they walk in and out, and you know what they buy, it should become apparent that those customers who you love and who love you have different buying patterns. Not just they buy more often, but they buy different stuff than the customers who come less often. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a central part of business. Mm -hmm. As you were speaking, and I, I was thinking that... Uh... A lot of, uh, you know, small retailers, grocery stores sometimes have this native wisdom. If, you know, because they are definitely not doing that kind of analysis and don't have access to that kind of data also. But they know that these customers are my high value customers and they will go um, make space for the products that they are regularly asking for. If they're living in the proximity, they'll... Uh, you know, make it available faster. I mean, they'll go to all extents. There are a lot of communities who are very good and who have a very good business sense. And, you know, they do this uh, intuitively. Um, I mean, it just came to me that, yeah. So I want to pick up on that because it's such an important point. You're right. That when we're operating a small business, when we have just kind of one store, we get this and we do it well. But then we open up the second store and then we open up the third store and then we open up the fourth store and we kind of spread out geographically. And then we lose all of that intuition. We lose all of that intimacy. And at that point, it becomes all about scale. Let's just get it out there as quickly and cheaply as possible. And, and the, that, that intuition that we should really celebrate, we do, it, just, it just goes away. So, so my point is that we can capture that intuition, the kinds of data, analytics, technology that we have today, the electron microscope of the customer, we have that. And there's no reason why we can't scale it as we scale the business as a whole. If we can continue to use technology to tag and track our customers instead of relying purely on intuition alone, we can hold on to that. We can continue to look for what makes different customers better. Uh, we can continue to look for ways to serve them better. There's no reason why we need to give that up as the company grows. But again, that's just not the way it works uh, very often. And Peter, uh, like you so graciously, although you've come up with such innovative models all the time and you know your papers are getting published in the who's who of the journals, but so graciously you you said that I figured that RFM is still holds good. Uh, what if you are a niche uh, brand? For for example, it's it's a, a condition based nutrition, like a nutraceutical for diabetics, for example. Right. So on one hand, you have doctors, and and that's a separate kind of marketing, and then you have people with diabetes where thought leadership will make a difference. Well, thought leadership is a very important matrix. So, you know, how is anything going to change? And that's a, it's a really important point. Very, very, very important. A lot of business, you, you used the word niche. Uh, and uh, and very often, again, a product-centric company will nicheify themselves. We are good at doing a certain kind of thing. Let's find the people who want that that technology that benefit that feature um uh, that that's fine in a product-centric world but it doesn't make sense in a customer-centric world 
Um, so there's, there's so there's two aspects to this. Number one, we want to broaden the offering. We want to emphasize as as broad a set of features as possible. Uh, so instead of just saying we're good at this one thing, if you're interested in that, come to us. We want to say we're actually good at a bunch of different things. Uh, and and here I want to give a, a big shout out to a, a colleague uh, down at the University of South Australia, a gentleman by the name of Byron Sharp, who mm-hmm. runs a research center there called the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. And, and you'll see the red books on my shelf up there. Uh, so so th- this grow. idea, how brands grow and how do brands grow is by being as broadly appealing to as many people as possible. So, uh, so I'm a, a big fan of that kind of work and, and agree with him that we don't want to nicheify ourselves. Now, at the same time, we do differ a bit. So for the most part, we, we align pretty well, especially around, say, the 80%, bring in as, as many customers for as many different reasons, advertise as broadly as possible, make, make sure you have that the messaging is consistent, make sure it's frequent, make sure it's loud, agree with all that. But when it comes to that 20%, when it comes to the beautiful swans, that's where sometimes we'll deviate a little bit. Uh, and I'll say, well, well, for those people, in addition to everything I just said, for those people, we got to treat them a little bit differently. So we have to ask ourselves, how again, how are they using our product? And then what other products and services can we develop or can we collaborate with to bring even more valuable to these kinds of customers? To, again, make them more valuable, extract that value from them and find more like them that there just tends to be a, a high, it's expensive to do all that, very, very expensive, and you're doing it for a relatively small base, but the ROI on it, if you can do it well, is really, really high. So in many ways, that's the growth engine for the company, while we do a lot of the how brands grow stuff to kind of maintain the base and do so in a, in a relatively cost-effective manner. It's kind of two pieces to the puzzle, and wow. again, hard yeah. for companies to master both of them. Wow, that that was amazing because uh, uh, be more accessible to your consumer, if I could say. Uh, I mean, of course, it includes <clears throat> businesses and B two B, etc. But uh, whether it is uh, you know uh, physically accessible or you know the way you communicate, so you you are accessible in the mind when the consumer is making his choice and you are in the consideration or maybe preferred. So amazing discernment uh, here, amazing nuance that, yes, that's fine. But I, at the same time, I know which is my swan. And because if I keep developing, like if I just take the same example, uh, the diabetic nutrition, and I start having instruments to track, if I am giving customized diets, uh, support in lifestyle management, et cetera, et cetera, then I'm giving them more and more that is relevant to them. Exactly right. And so, you know, too often we're just thinking about, you know, our product and what is version two of the product going to be. And for a product-centric firm, that's fine. But if you really want to be customer-centric, you really want to say what makes those swans different, what else can we bring to them, that just doesn't come as naturally in, in today's corporate environment. Again, it does if we're going back to the, that, you know, small mom and pop grocery store. There, we get this. And all I'm saying is that same kind of intuition applies. Uh, and again, it's just a matter of leveraging the data and not losing that mindset to be able to uh, do it effectively. Wow, wow. This is a masterclass for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
So uh, then when you have, uh, you know, there is a case study showcasing the impact of CLV on business performance and decision making. And uh, there is one that you share about the Penn students, how they forecasted Dish Network's customer acquisition uh, and, and, and the, Wall ex, uh, the Wall Street experts uh, analysis fell short, if, if I'm saying this right. Would you well, like to share a bit? bit? Oh, I would love to, because this has been a game changing for me. Because uh, most everything we've spoken about so far, it's all been with a very strong marketing orientation which is just, you know, how can we market better by recognizing the difference across our customers? And that's great. And I love that. I'm a marketing professor. Um, but what we found is that these models and these stories can be just as appealing to the folks in finance as they are to the folks in marketing. And so much of my work recently has been on this idea of customer-based corporate valuation that if we can project how many customers are gonna acquire and how long they're gonna stay and how often they're gonna buy and how much they're gonna spend when they do, that we can do a better job of predicting revenue over a longer horizon more accurately and with a better diagnostic understanding of why it's going up and down using our marketing models. So basically trying to build a bridge, a solid bridge, not just a casual conversation, but a meaningful collaboration between marketing and, and finance uh, and it's been working. So, uh, you know, I've commercialized a lot of this work. I sold one company to, to Nike. Then we started up this new company, Theta, like the Greek letter Theta, not like my name, Theta. T-A-T-T-A. <laughs> um, um, and it's been just, just amazing to actually win over the folks on Wall Street, the folks in finance, and again, build really great collaborations with the people in marketing. Uh, so, you know, working with a private equity firm um, let's do a better job of valuing that company that we're thinking of buying. And then if we buy it, then let's do all the marketing stuff to actually uh, create even more value from it. So it's so nice to use a similar mindset, similar tools for, for very different kinds of activities within the organization. And for me, it's been extremely gratifying and it's been, uh, it, just, it just keeps me excited to keep moving ahead with these models and their applications. Yeah, and it helps that you find numbers cool. <laughs> we will get to that. <laughs> My mother was was just brilliant at the numbers. In, in her case, she was a world-class card player. She would play the game of bridge, and she was a, a, a superior at that. And she wanted me to learn how to play bridge. And just because my parents did it, I figured, well, I'm not going to. Um, so I found other ways to kind of channel some of my, my math interests. And from the time I was a little kid, when, when mom would come home from the grocery store, you know, with, with, with all of her change from the grocery store, um, I would uh, look at all the bills uh, and I would look them over. I'd look at the, literally at the numbers on the dollar bills uh, and I would judge the coolness of those numbers. And I'd look at some numbers and say, well, that's not very cool. I'd give that a 20 on a zero to 100 scale. But this one over here, like this one over here, I don't know how well we can focus in on that. You yeah. see, that was, that was really cool. There's no repeated digits. Wow. wow. And so, so I collect bills with interesting serial numbers. And again, sometimes it's really clear what makes a number interesting. Sometimes it's not. Like somewhere around here, I have like some prime numbers. And you would never know that from looking at it, but that's but I find that fascinating. So I own the website coolnumbers.com. 
it's really terrible and, and it's embarrassing because I haven't updated it in probably 20 years. But I literally do collect dollar bills with, with interesting serial numbers. Uh, and I have just shoe boxes filled with dollar bills. And it turns out there's people, too many people or not enough people all around the world with too much time on their hands. Uh, and, and so all the time people are looking dollar bills up and they want to know how interesting it is. And so they use my idiotic website for that. So, uh, and I'm, I'm really serious about it. I, I have my, my stamp over here. How? So every time I find a cool number, I, I stamp it and, and then I put it back out there in circulation to spread the gospel to let other people learn about it. It's kind of embarrassing, but, uh, no, but you know, that's me. It's really <laughs> cool because it's such an original, uh, you know, hobby. I mean, I mean, I've never, ever heard of this. All of the bills that I just pulled out here, they're all uh, U.S. $1 bills. I never do this with bigger bills. I'll never do it with 20s or 100s because that starts getting expensive. <laughs> oh, this is a <laughs> hobby. I, I can do it with what people will, will uh, actually buy and sell these bills online. I don't do that. Uh, that's, that's uh, again, a step too far. That's for future, uh, Peter. That's for future. <laughs> well, you know, I don't mind if, if people do. I have no objection to it. Very often people look bills up on, on my website and then they'll send me an email saying, what do you think this one's worth? Uh, and I say, I don't, I don't, you, 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 you find out. Now, what I should do is I should get a cut. Yeah, I should, yeah. I should, I, should, I should tell them what it's worth. I should build a whole marketplace of dollar bills. Only first time the idea came on Jagged with Jastravi. This is a moment, guys. <laughs> okay, I'll be on my best behavior here. Ready. Go. Okay. Mother's best advice. Um, uh, marry a nice girl. Alternate profession could have been? A manager for the Philadelphia Phillies baseball team. Hmm. What would you do on Mars for fun? Uh, I'd collect Martian dollar bills, uh, ho <laughs> hoping they they use numbers. <laughs> yeah. Okay. As for your partner, your most often used phrase. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> one thing no one knows about you. I have seven toes on my right foot. Seriously? No. <laughs> but... <laughs> You'll, you'll, have, you'll have to find out. See, I knew you could make it up. Okay, nice. <laughs> we'll take it. Okay, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? Uh, don't be such a jerk. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, 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 you can rely on just being kind of smart and goofy, but but uh, but but don't, don't make it any worse. Okay. A book you'd like to gift to all your friends, and it cannot be your own. Uh, Girdle Escher Bach, a wonderful book from the uh, the, the mid-1980s. Mm, delicious. Okay, okay. What's your favorite childhood memory? Um, watching sports with my family. Just, just, just sitting home and then uh, sitting with mom and dad and watching baseball or basketball and, and just, you know, complaining about the players and the referees. Yeah, such an evocative image. Beautiful. If you were to devote the rest of your life to philanthropy, what would you choose? A quantitative literacy. Uh, I, I wish people were just much more comfortable with, with math and numbers and probabilities and stuff like that. Absolutely. Okay. What is your greatest joy? Sleeping. Ah, sleeping. I don't <laughs> do enough of that. <laughs> How would you like strangers to... 
remember you. See, I, I saved you from being shot, huh? How would you like strangers to remember you? <laughs> um, relentlessly cheerful. Mm, nice. What is a lesson that took you a long time to learn? That you can be yourself. Uh, I, mean, I, I, I had a, a, a bad case of imposter syndrome for many, many years until realizing, you know what, I can just, just do my thing. Uh, and that's good enough. What is one missed opportunity you wish you could have a second chance at? Uh, not disparaging the iPhone when it came out. I, I thought it was just a terrible idea. And I went on record to say, what a stupid product this is. Um, boy, was that a mistake. And I, and I still pay for it almost every day. Oh, how? Because uh, people find some of the things I said about it back in 2007. And I look like a total idiot about it. And, and they keep resurfacing those words. It's like, I was wrong. I admit I was wrong. Just leave me alone already. Awesome. Please leave him alone now. Okay. <laughs> What's next? Um, oh, uh, setting up a marketplace for people to buy and sell dollar bills with interesting numbers. Jagged Vichasrami. Jagged idea. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Peter. So I'd request you to share your online addresses, emails, anything that you'd like to share, uh, anything you want to say about the book uh, so that, you know, people can. I have said enough. I've you. kind of advertised it enough. And if people are interested in, in any of this stuff, whether it's the models, the books, the, the startups around them, the dollar bill thing, um, I, I don't hide very well. So just uh, go Google my name, Pete Fader. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Follow me on Twitter. Check out the tweet that I just posted for, for, for you. Um, uh, and I'm, I, I, and, and that, that, that point about be, being relentlessly cheerful, I just love talking about any of this stuff. And so if people want to pick up the conversation, it would it'd truly be my pleasure. Awesome. And in the show notes, we will uh, give your, uh, you know, all... Um, details. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. You just have such a, a unique way of, of, of interviewing and you really did your homework well. I appreciate all that and, and would be delighted uh, to keep the conversation going. Yes, yes. Please stay in touch and write more books and stay okay. jagged. <laughs> okay, will do. Thanks. Take care now.